You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, Episode 7. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome listeners to They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. My guest today is Koshi Dingra, a holistic STEM educator and the founder and director of Talk STEM. Welcome, Koshi. My pleasure. Um, so can you tell me about yourself? What's your story? So I am a almost 52-year-old Indian woman born and raised in Malaysia, lived in a variety of different places in the world, including Malaysia, Singapore, St. Martin in the Caribbean, um, Madrid, Spain, New York City, and now Dallas, Texas, which has been my home for the last 15 years. One of the funny things is I always say the only culture shock I really had was when I moved to Dallas. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, for the <laughs> <laughs> because it's probably more different, really, in just very one discrete way, uh, which is that it's you know very much a car culture. Since I never lived anywhere in the United States outside of New York City, which is clearly not, I realize now, typically American. Uh, I never really experienced the car culture, and I think that sort of changes everything. You know, your interactions with. Uh, environment around you, people around you, everything. So I think that was really the cause of culture shock. Could have been anywhere in the United States, which is most of the United States. It depends on cause. And I would have had a similar reaction. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, obviously, one of the common themes of this podcast is immigration patterns. And Indians end up in everywhere, in every tiny little town in America, whereas yeah. a lot of them are concentrated in major metropolitan areas in other countries. So you know, I, I've looked at your bio and you've moved around, but I'm guessing you were in major cities until you came to the States. And then after your time in New York, you ended up in Dallas, which is not a small place, but it's definitely more indicative of like local culture or non exactly. mega metropolitan culture than other, you know, cities are. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's just funny. I mean, it's home now and, uh, you know, I have lots of great friends and it's a great place to be because largely of the people I know, and it's a big enough city to have, you know, I am a city person, so it has enough of the stuff that I need in terms of diverse kinds of restaurants and, you know, museum exhibits and the like to, you know, to keep me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's got a big enough airport that gets me to different places frequently enough and easily enough that, uh, you know, it's fine. But like I said, (laughs) that whole wait, I have to actually drive to buy my milk? How, how does that work? You know, initially when I moved here, it was because of the kids. My husband would laugh at me because, you know, I would order, this is before, you know, Amazon was what it is today, right? So I would order from my neighborhood baby store, you know, in Manhattan, stuff that I needed. And my argument was, you know, by the time I go to Baby Zara's park, walk around, find the thing, get back. I mean, I probably... In terms of carbon footprint and stuff, it's probably more or less the same thing. So <laughs> let me just take the easy way in, tell them to, to ship me from my nice little neighborhood place. So yes, definitely relied on New York City as a crutch for the first oh year or two of moving here. Yeah, definitely. So you grew up in Malaysia, right? What was that like? It was wonderful. I I mean, I don't 
I don't know if there is if there is a typical upbringing, but you know, in terms of schools and so forth, I attended British schools, so it wasn't you know a typical Malaysian existence. My parents wanted the three of us—I'm the third of three siblings—to have an education in English English medium instruction. I think somewhere when I was still little, I don't know, five, six, something like that, the government made this change towards what they call, you know, the Malay language, they call it Bahasa Malaysia, um, that, you know, everybody who was a Malaysian passport holder must go to a local public school and learn Malay. There was this, you know, this movement, this feeling that you should just learn the local language and be fluent in the local language and be happy to do that. So I guess my parents who you know, they were connected enough to India and different parts of the world that they're like, well, I don't know about that. It's not like Malaysia is that huge of a country. So I had to pull a few strings to, you know, get the okay for me to go to British school, which is mainly an international place with, you know, diplomat kids and kids of business people from different parts of the world, including India and Europe. We didn't have too many Americans because the Americans would always go to the American school. And then people from the rest of the world would come to the British school. So it was like attending the international British school as a non-diplomatic kid? You know, I mean, I was a kid. It was fine. That was My world was great. Uh, lots of exposure to, you know, you name the food, you name the holiday. To me, even today, that was my normal and that still is my normal. And that's kind of mm-hmm. the benchmark for me that everybody is from everywhere and we all celebrate each other's holidays. So we go to each other's place for Hari Raya, which is what we call Eid or Chinese New Year or Diwali or Christmas and it was all fair game and it was all fantastic. Um, so that was kind of my reality and the ways, and I think the way that I now parent and connect with my kids' friends um, is really, you know, stems from that, those sets of experiences, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, definitely, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had those. Yeah, definitely. So do you feel like, this is a hypothetical, so it might be hard to answer, but if you had gone to a, a local Malay school, do you feel like your Indian identity would have been as celebrated or as acknowledged as it was in the international school? So, you know, Malaysia is multiracial and about 10% of the population is of Indian descent. I was different in the sense that most of my other Indian friends who were Malaysian, uh, you know, who didn't go to the private school that I went to, uh, whom I actually got to know later because I went to public junior college in Singapore, um, they, you know, they had been there for generations. And so their feeling of belonging, like I belong to Malaysia too, but in a different way, right? Because I was first generation. I guess I was like the equivalent of an ABCD, but in Malaysia. Um, mm-hmm. Right? So my parents had more connection to India. Most of my friends uh, who were Indian, Malaysian, uh, did not. You know, they didn't have relatives in India. They didn't go to India to visit their grandmother, which I did. So I was kind of different from them in that regard. Um, but I think, you know, being Indian was pretty common, you know, 10% or so of the population. You have the food, I don't know if you've been there, but the food in Malaysia is widely celebrated. And I mean, unbiasedly, I will say it's the best food in the world, <laughs> um, largely because of that commingling of, you know, history and spices. So you have your Indian Muslim food, you have your, you know, all, all sorts of things. It's, I don't know that it would have been different. I guess the only difference would have been that there were some other kids who were, I don't know if they were Malaysian born, but they'd spent the bulk of their formative years in Malaysia, but their parents were from India. So I think I probably mixed more with Indians who had a stronger connection to India 
because I went to this international school versus if I'd gone to a local public school where I would have mixed with Indians too, but they would have had a different, you know, connection to India and background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So instead of emerging kind of with that hybrid Malay Indian identity, the Indian Indian became more salient. Yes, exactly. To all intents and purposes, myself and my other friends, including the Indian ones at the school were, you know, we lived in the present and, but our parents, like if I went for a sleepover or something, they were kind of more typically the, the kind of Indian parents that, you know, again, the stereotype is over here, you know, like my, my husband, his parents are both doctors and they came with that wave. So they were more like that. So, you know, professionals who moved to Malaysia, uh, and one area that I guess was an area of need in Malaysia at the time, similar to what happened some years ago here in the U.S., was medicine. So there mm-hmm. were a number of Indian doctors' kids mm-hmm. in school with me. Right. Was that kind of a, a higher class, like education class and socioeconomic class of people uh, than generally in Malaysia for the Indian population? No, not really, because... No, it's very, very, because of the British, you know, Raj, most of the Indians who had been brought there were South Indians and came to work on the rubber plantations mm-hmm. in Malaysia. And they've been there a while, a long while, several generations. See, so all kinds of people, myself, my, my dad, and, you know, our family was a business family. So we were not as highly educated as a doctor. I think my dad even went to college, uh, but he had a successful business. So... I mean, I think it really was diverse in that sense. You had all different kinds of people who came there for different... It was a, sm- it's a small country, certainly, in the scale of where we live today, but definitely had a lot of diversity. So the concept of diversity, and I think one thing that I constantly kind of go back and forth in is, you know, I always in my head is like, well, what do we mean by diversity? You know, and to me, it comes down to really acceptance of lots of different just ways of being. So, yeah, being mm-hmm. Indian, there were... North Indians and South Indians, there were business people, there were professionals, there were people who had connections to India more recently than people who had never been to India. All different skin colors, although the majority were South Indians or darker skin tones. And with yeah. all of that, at least at that point, I mean, I was a kid, remember, mm-hmm. it was all it was all fine and dandy. I didn't really feel any sort of tension or difference or mm-hmm. acceptance level. Is looking back on it, this is one issue that hasn't come up as much as I would have thought honestly is there's not a, a whole lot about colorism with some of the podcasts that I've done so what was it like being in Malaysia with that in mind that because it, it's one of those countries that really does have a heavy South Indian population that tends mm-hmm. to have yeah. darker skin tones how is that coming to right. the states where the a huge chunk of the Indians that are here are central and northern Indian right exactly yeah I mean it, it did it definitely I mean I noticed that immediately and I thought wow yeah it's I met a lot more like Gujaratis than I'd ever known. It just was different. I, I, I mean, I knew, obviously, I had family in, in New York uh, before I moved here, so I visited. And uh, I kind of expected it. It didn't feel different anyway. Uh, it was fine. It's funny that now where I live in, in Dallas, the school that my kids go to, it's again going with that diversity theme in education. It was extremely important to me to have not only a really high quality education for our kids, but to have that diversity. So the school that we were lucky enough to be able to, because it's, you know, the usual sort of saga of trying to get your kids in these schools, uh, private schools, uh, is one of the most diverse in the independent schools uh, in the United States. 
And you know, that was really important to me because I remember how happy and comfortable I felt uh, being who I was ethnically and culturally, and also enjoying all the different people who were my friends who came from all different backgrounds and their parents and their traditions and their foods and their holidays and their attire, their homes, everything. And so that was really critical to me, probably more important than to Aaron. So Aaron grew up in my husband in, um, you know, a suburb of Dallas in the 70s. And then he went to the Northeast for college and pretty much stayed there until we moved back here about 15 years ago. And um, for him, because I guess it was more, I mean, he had a great childhood, but he was definitely, you know, the only brown kid in his school. And it wasn't bad. People were perfectly nice. But there is, I imagine that even at that age, I would have been a little sensitive to this othering because I don't really enjoy being some sort of exotic animal. I'd rather just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, be one of the species that we're all here together. Yeah, I do. I do think there is an element to just being a woman. You probably pick up things that your husband may not necessarily have have noticed. That intersectionality (laughs) that, that makes it more... Apparent. I think so because I'm like really you didn't find he was no everyone was really great and everything was great and they still loved coming to my house and eating Indian food and everyone loved coming to my house and eating Indian food because they thought it was great I'm like okay well I would probably I would have been the difficult person like you got to come to my house and I'm not going to give you Indian food so now what do you think <laughs> about that <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> uh, how about I come to your house and you give me Indian food right. I'm, I'm just like a difficult person that way so <laughs> I don't think I'd have had the same reaction. Yeah, I think that's a New York thing. Don't don't put me into a box and expect that I'm going to conform to your notion of what yeah. I am. So then you, after Malaysia, you said you spent the first 17 years of your life there, and then you moved over to Singapore for university. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Mm-hmm. Junior college and university. So I lived there for five years. And obviously, you know, it's so close. I, again, I had family in Singapore, so to go back and forth for holidays and so forth. My cousins lived there. My mom's brother. Um, and Singapore is, you know... I think the key difference is in the proportion of Chinese is so much higher than Malaysia, although it's really very similar. Obviously, they share a great deal of history. Mm-hmm. Um, the time that I was there was already you know, fairly advanced, but not sort of the super financial power that it is today. It was great. I mean, the food and lifestyle, weather and everything was very similar, but I'd never been away from home before. So that was different. And I had never been in a large. So now I was in a public school. So the class sizes were huge. I'd been in a small private school and I'd been, you know, a good student. So I had the typical scenario of going from being sort of the creme de la creme to being just one of them. These kids were not only bright, they were fast. They were, you know, great problem solvers. So that first year was academically very sort of up and down for me. And I did pretty horribly in my exams at the end of the year. And it's, my family is not like, big on education just because it's more again I'm I'm putting things in boxes after saying that I won't but you know it's a business family I think that I'm probably the only person male or female in my family that got a graduate degree I think in my parents minds like oh yeah it's nice she's good at school she wants to go there that's fine good for her it'll make her happy but you know obviously she's going to settle down in her early 20s and I mean whoever she marries or whoever we get her married to is not really going to care about what grade she got in you know, biology class. 
So <laughs> they, there was no pressure coming from home is my point. But, you know, it was hard on me because I've always been the type, I think, that just put a lot of pressure on herself. So I was really very traumatic to do that awfully. I'd never, ever done this poorly in school ever in my whole life. So the second year, I just somehow buckled down. And I don't know, I guess I figured out a strategy and did a lot better, well enough to get into National University of Singapore, which is considered a very good university in that part of the world. Um, And yeah, then three years in a dorm life. Again, totally different because now I was not living in my families, uh, with my family, with my cousins and with my uncle. So that was a whole new thing, probably similar to, you know, anything that you have. Although, of course, college life in Singapore is probably both similar and different to college life here. So that was great. Uh, And then what happened after that was my family in my final year of university. So remember, they're a business family. We had a retail store in Kuala Lumpur. Um, And that was the time in the 80s, sort of mid to late 80s of the big, you know, Pacific Rum rim bust. Things were really bad business-wise. My father was exploring other options. Um, He had some family in the U.S. Um, But he was a retailer, so life as a retailer in the U.S., he explored, he, you know, he visited people and so forth, would be very difficult because you basically have to be there or have people you trust be there to manage things uh, a good 12 to 14 hours a day. And this is very different from the life we had where we had kind of this high-end retail store that catered to, you know, people like the princes and princesses in Malaysia as well as, you know, other kind of, you know, European fabrics kind of thing. And, yeah. The luxury so and that retail. Was, yeah. And that was not going to be possible here. And so he was like, mm, I don't know about that. So he, I guess he, he's passed away, but he had, um, I don't know, distant family or something in the Caribbean. And he went on a tour with them and there were with Indies. So there were uh, a number of really great business opportunities in his opinion in the Caribbean that would allow him and his family to live more in the lifestyle we were used to, you know, not like, I mean, working hard, but not like doing nothing but work. And also visas and so forth were at that time feasible in St. Martin. So that's how my family landed up in St. Martin. He opened up a store there while I was still finishing up college in Singapore. So my plan had been, and things would have gone totally differently if the economy had been such that we continue with our family business in Malaysia, because I was just going to go on and do the honors level and then do graduate work in biochemistry or microbiology in Singapore. And then probably I'd do some research, or get some, you know, be a research scientist work in a lab and so forth. But because my family moved to the Western, to the West, you know, they wanted me to be closer. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm not going to come and live in St. Martin because what am I going to do there? You know, there's only so much beach I can take. (laughs) Um, So I was like, you know, and and it was going to be expensive because in Singapore, everything would have been paid for and we were starting out a new business. So I told my dad, look, I'm I'm only going to come if I mean, if we can, I mean, then I'd have to pay for college, for grad school in, in America, and I'm sure that's expensive. So maybe I should just stay here. But he really wanted me to be here, as did my mom, and said, we will make it work. Don't worry. Go ahead and apply. So that's the reason that I moved, spent some time in St. Martin, looking at whatever tests I had to take as an international student to come into the U.S. And then um, I think I, that was the longest I ever lived in St. Martin, uh, sort of, you know, at one go, and it was probably like about five or six months. 
and it kind of drove me bonkers. <laughs> so I was <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I need to go somewhere else while I apply to my GREs and apply. My sister was living in Madrid, so I thought, I'll go study Spanish. I've mm-hmm. never studied Spanish before. Went there and went to the university there, took Spanish, and uh, applied to grad school and so forth from there. And basically, yeah, came, came to New York uh, shortly after. So can you tell me a bit about what it was like as an Indian woman walking around the streets of St. Martin and then moving to Madrid for that limited period of time? Like what what are some of the things that you realized about yourself in that period or how people perceived you even? Okay. So in St. Martin, you're not Indian. You're Sindhi or you're not Sindhi if you're Indian. I see. Um, I'm Sindhi. And I realized I'm a very atypical Sindhi, at least at the time. (laughs) So Sindhi... Sindhi business people, first of all, they're, you know, they're, they're a small community. So most people, particularly people outside of Indian groups, don't know what a Sindhi is because it's such a small community, right? So I'm always defining who I am in those terms because, you know, Sindhi culture is very strong. And although it's got lots of similarities to other groups like Punjabis, it's also still very different, you know, language, food, certain ways of doing things. So in St. Martin, all of, it's a part French and part Dutch island. We lived on the Dutch side. The Dutch side is kind of more the, uh, you know, the, the side that the cruise ships come to because of the nature of the pier. It yeah. accommodates that. And so all of these businesses that were mainly diamond shops, is a duty-free island. Hence the reason there was an influx of not just Indians, but Sindhis who, you know, opened up their businesses to cater to the tourists who back then used to spend money. Now, of course, it's no longer the case. Um, so tons of really high-end luxury shops, you know, Cartier's and all of that. All in these little, little shops that's kind of incongruous that you would think just, you know, have like little tourist gimmicky things. But they, oh my God, they sell diamond necklaces and, you know, expensive, expensive watches. And they're all, mm-hmm. all owned by Cindy. I never had that experience because wherever I'd lived as an Indian in Singapore and Malaysia, I was... I mean, there were Cindy's, but there wasn't this heavy concentration. So it was a very, very different experience. I would walk down and everybody knew each other. And if I talked to my mom, she would not only know them, she would know what their grandparents used to do in Hyderabad Sindh before partition. I'd be like, oh my God, this is just so strange. It was a totally different experience. And, you know, it was really being kind of part of this small community, but now suddenly it's so recognizable that all these people around you are Cindy. And they were, most of them, fairly traditional. So I guess it's self-selected, right? With these business families. Uh, At the time, my mom tells me, you know, when I went off to grad school in New York, everyone was like, oh my gosh, we can't believe you're letting your daughter go off. And of all places, live on her own in a place like New York City. Even worse, when I finished school and was just living in an apartment alone. So, you know, at that time, fairly conservative uh, business family. Fortunately for me, my parents seemed to trust me and know and just want me to be happy. And there was absolutely no pressure to come to St. Martin or get married or any of that. So thank goodness for that. Cause uh, you know, at that age, I think, you know, your parents are everything in the world to you. Um, I don't know. I probably would have just said, okay, well, you know, I don't want you to worry or feel bad or, you know, be embarrassed. So. Tell me what you want me to do. Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. 
Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741, and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org, or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. So can you tell me more about what it was like in all of those different places, kind of as, as who you are, South Asian woman, you know, what, mm-hmm. how would people... In, in that, still yeah. in that same age, like early 20s? Yeah, over time. I mean, you had been, by that point, you had lived in Malaysia, Singapore, a little bit in the um, St. Martin, and then in Madrid. So then you came to New York. So think, how, did, uh, how did people look at you? How did people describe you throughout time? And how did your understanding of yourself kind of evolve over that period? I think that the most as I, as I, you know, if you ask me the question, I'm thinking back, I realized that when people, at least to my mind, looked at me the way they used to look at me at school, which is, oh, yeah, here's somebody who's, you know, she could be Indian, she could be, I mean, a lot of people, because we live here, if I was like a Port Authority bus station, people would come and talk to me in Spanish, because I could pass off as being Hispanic, Central American or South American. Even when people know that my husband is Indian and I think the way I look, I, I could be a mixture or I could be something else. In a way, that's made life a little easy as well. They don't really immediately know how to place me. So that's never been, I think, if I'd had the experience that people automatically knew, oh, yeah, you're from, you know, you're, this is your background. Maybe I'd have a different, I'm very used to people not quite placing me. And uh, that was the case always. So after you finished at Columbia, where did you go next? Uh, so I got my master's. It was, uh, you know, I finished it sort of in one year. And then I applied for jobs. I decided to stay on. I had a H1, oh, sorry, I had an F1 student visa. Mm-hmm. And I could stay on for practical training is what they called it. So I wanted to stay on. I applied for jobs and I got a job teaching. And I took a while to figure out that I could only get a job at a private school. Uh, New York City Board of Ed, you know, I went there because, of course, my program that I was in uh, to get certified as a teacher to teach in a public school, which is what most of my classmates did. But at that time, at least, you know, I got the major runaround and nobody, not at the university international student office and nor at Board of Ed could connect the dots and say, oh, wait, hang on. You can't teach in public school <laughs> because... You can't be certified, you know. Anyway, so after some running around, I figured that out. And I said, ooh, well, I really want to stay and work. So I thought, well, I'll apply to private schools and let me see if they, need, they didn't need certification. So I got a job teaching at an independent school on the Upper West Side. I, I found an apartment uh, on the Upper West Side. And I was at that school for three years teaching high school. Mm. So... What did you feel looking at looking at your students compared to your life? Oh, yeah. So now everything, even though I'd got this master's degree that said that I you know, could teach, my entire experience of learning in a classroom was situated in a very different world and cultural framework. I, when I look back now, I, I kind of wince because I realize, you know, I was making so many assumptions and making so many mistakes. Uh, one of the major assumptions I made that would be that everybody gets that you just have to keep trying till you get it. Because that's mm-hmm. part of, you know, learning in Singapore and places like that. 
mm-hmm. and that nobody was necessarily naturally good at anything. And you don't talk about being smart or good at something. That's just not. Whereas over here, I realized you either were good at science or you weren't. You were either good at math or you weren't. And I was like, wow, I didn't know you had the option. <laughs> I thought you just had to work at it. <laughs> really, it's a binary. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's just that different kind of mentality, which is, well, everybody can be competent. Maybe you're not going to be a rocket scientist or the next Nobel laureate in the field, but you can be competent. Everybody can. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a learning process, adjusting to these kids. And I was teaching also, you know, American adolescents. That was a whole new ball game. And I was, of course, they were looking at me probably, I mean, through their eyes, I was this like young, early 20s, very petite, Asian, who knows where she's from, with a strange accent woman, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, they were very nice for the most part. But I still always remember, you know, the kids who kind of tortured you a bit and you'd spend all your time going, oh, my God, I have that class again. Oh, no. Yeah. And so it was, it was. I, it was difficult. It was definitely difficult. I was in a small private school where they also, I was just so like hungry for a job. I just said, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, I can teach that. And sure, I can teach that. I was teaching six different, no, five different preps, six different classes, out of which three of the preps, I had never taken a course in, like astronomy and mm-hmm. oceanography. I didn't have a clue what I was teaching. <laughs> I just said, oh yeah, I could do that. <laughs> I can be that was just awful. I used to come home exhausted because if you want to know what true exhaustion is, try teaching a group of high school kids, particularly in domains where you've never taken a course and then having just moved recently from Singapore. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I used to come home, take a nap for an hour and then get up and prep. Prep till the wee hours and then get up and start all over again. If you had to go back in time and kind of advise the school board or the school system in which you taught one lesson that you had learned from your education system growing up, what would it have been? Uh, Well, so one lesson from my educational system would be the importance of doesn't matter what the subject matter is to talk about competence and how there's these different paths to access competence in this field and why it's important. Like to start so that kids, you know, because there's a culture over here where kids hear and then they repeat that they're not good at this or they're not that kind of person. You know, in and, and a society that says that they don't like to be put in a box, they definitely put academics in boxes. You're yeah. a math kind of person or this is science or I don't like this or I don't, I'm like, oh, you know, that was just very strange. So after three years at this first private school, I switched to another private school just four blocks away, but like, totally different, much better match for me. And um, my colleagues, and I made a lot of really great friends. You know, we all connected. We were mid-20s and lots of great energy, lots of different teaching methodologies. So even though it was a more traditional school, we kind of really freshened it. And we also socialized a lot. So they would joke and tell me, now now that I'm talking to you, and say, because I I don't know what we were talking about, some sort of biases, et cetera. And I would say something like, well, I don't think so, because I've never really experienced that. And they would say, well, that's because of the way you speak. So maybe my accent, which is kind of now at this point, a hybrid accent, mm-hmm. um, helped me because it's part of my cultural capital, right? Mm-hmm. So I may not have the same experience as if I had maybe a more heavily accented English. Uh, we all have accented English, but you know what I mean? Accented and different 
New Yorkers in particular love they love the British. It's kind of funny, really. So because I have a hint of a British accent, my life may have been a little easier. Mm-hmm. And that's what they said. And they would laugh at me like, oh, my gosh, Koshi, <laughs> have you heard yourself speak? Right. How would you know? And I'm, I'm like, yes, all the time, actually. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm just saying this because it might be interesting to you because you're obviously looking at a very nuanced, you know, you're taking a very nuanced look at all of this. So mm-hmm what kind of accent a person has, how do people respond to that? And that's the only reason I'm bringing it up. But I, you know, maybe there was some truth to that. But honestly, I have never felt any kind of bias being a woman or being Indian or anything, at least in my my profession. Yeah, that's great. Maybe I should have gone into teaching. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I the wrong life choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Interesting. All right. Um, so then after New York, or not even after New York, but after your first few years teaching, lead me up into present day and what you do now. Okay. So the second school that I was at with the friends that I just mentioned, I think my second year teaching there is when I met my now husband. We dated. Um, and it was just so easy. I had a number of you know, small, short-lived relationships. My, you know, romantic life was just very oh my gosh dramatic and of course it was good that I had all these friends in the same age group because we spent all of their time talking about our respective romantic lives um Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I met my husband and it was just you know you realize when you meet the right person and just the right time in your life things just can happen fairly easily so we were married probably within I don't know a year and a half the fact that my father passed away in there catalyzed our getting married because I'm like look we're going to get married anyway so why don't you get married to make my mother happy <laughs> so <laughs> we got married a little earlier because it gave her like a project you know yeah so often plan mm-hmm. everything right so we got married uh we moved to another apartment same neighborhood upper west side I continued oh I decided to he and I talked about it I love teaching and at this point I was a very respected teacher at the school that I taught at you know I had mentees and type of thing I, was, I got married at the age of 30, so I was 30. Um, I decided for me to get my doctorate because the way I thought about it is the only reason I was, I loved the idea of staying on and teaching, but it was more for kind of anecdotal-based learning. But I was really ready to learn in a, in a meaty, large-scale way in you know, a program. So that's why I decided to get my doctorate, and then I went to teacher education and taught at universities. And so when I was at City University of New York, uh, we had difficulty having children. So I went through in vitro. And then Ronick was born, which was just one of the most amazing experiences in our lives for my husband and me. We were so grateful, so happy. And obviously that period before that was, you know, very challenging mm-hmm. going through in vitro, being, you know, everything was about probability. We measured everything in probability. You know, it was yeah. just so very intense. Um, so Ronick was born, I had Ronick in New York City, so I got to have a baby in New York, which was great, you know, stroller culture, um, <laughs> had maternity leave, and then, according to the infertility doctor, if, I, if we wanted to have more, really, we should take a six-month break and then do it again, so we're very kind of type A people, we had a goal, right clockwork, did the IVF again, thinking, oh, it's probably going to take a while, but well, it took, which is why I now have three kids, pair of twins, and Ronak 14 months apart. Oh, okay. um, 
So the IVF took twins, which we found out pretty early because it was IVF. And I remember coming home and Aaron hadn't come to that uh, doctor's checkup. He had work. And so I showed him the picture and I remember him saying, so, oh, you know, it's all this grainy black and white picture. And he's like, oh, yeah, cool. This is so great. And he's like, wait, which one is it? You know, is it that little dot or that little? I'm like, exactly. And he's like, oh, my God. Which, of course, you expect it's a higher chance of twinning. But, you know, since it hadn't happened the first time around, I guess in our heads, it just wasn't really an option. So, of course, three-bedroom apartment, which was large by New York standards. Third bedroom was teeny tiny. And I think he half said as a joke that first day when we were processing this information, um, you know, we should just move to my parents' house in, in the Dallas area and, uh, and then, you know, live, have the babies there and, and then come back after some time and then figure out where we want to live in New York. Mm-hmm. And then, he, and, I mean, that idea just took, because for us it was more like, well, how are we going to look after Ronak? And also have two kids who were probably going to be preemies. And, and then, of course, just we had bought this apartment fairly recently, keeping in, you know, thinking that we were going to have two kids. So all of that basically is the reason we moved, moved to Bedford. Moved to Bedford, Texas, which is 30 minutes from Dallas, at a time where there was not even a Starbucks or a Barnes & Noble in Bedford. So that was the culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, I visited, obviously, and, you know, but visiting is different than living particularly living, uh, you know, with babies where you're kind of more bogged down by schedules and routines. So three years, lived in Bedford. And at the time, I didn't know anyone professionally in the state of Texas. But then when the twins were babies, I just needed some escape from, you know, you love the babies, but just some escape to do something else. So I did some adjunct teaching work at, you know, different universities in the area. And uh, that was good. Um, and uh, moved to Dallas. We built our house. And then still kind of trying to figure out the lay of the land and do some things professionally. The kids were now at, you know, uh, toddler school and so forth. So there was a few hours in a day where I was a free bird. And somehow, you know, just luck of the land, I think this was definitely pivotal in what happened later. Uh, was connected to this gentleman is a Nobel laureate who was founding a science and uh, engineering education center here at UT Dallas. So met him and really connected with him and, you know, worked together with him to get that center going. So I was, you know, one of the directors of that center uh, for several years. And that was probably about five years ago, five, six years ago. Decided to leave. My kids were going into middle school and really wanted to be able to pick them up and, you know, spend time with them every afternoon, et cetera. Um, and so I resigned from my replacement and thought, oh, I'll just spend this year, you know, I don't know, working out and also writing. Um, and unlike the academic writing that I'd done, and as a professor, I thought one of the things I'd really been interested in, I've always loved to write, you know, wrote my requisite novel while I was in New York that was rejected. <laughs> um, you know, if you think it's licensed, you have to you have to do that if you live in New York. Otherwise, they kick you out. Um, that's where that's so, where I wrote my novel. I wrote mine in New York. <laughs> there you go. You have to mm-hmm. have to do the whole cafe thing and all of that. And who knows? Maybe I'll resurrect it sometime. Yeah, I got um, my published, so it's it's always possible. Did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's sold all over the world. Oh wow! What what was it called? It's called the what's paths, it called? the paths of marriage. 
the path of marriage the paths of marriage oh. yeah yeah okay i'm gonna look it up yeah. wow that's so cool i had no idea um right so who knows maybe i should uh dredge it up and uh look at it again or, or just come up with something different but now you know i've been so immersed in my my work i thought that i would like to try and write something that would connect to the lay people you know people who would find some of these topics in science and math education to be of interest perhaps parents um so i tried doing that for a while and then i realized i really was more interested in suddenly sharing my perspectives, but really gathering perspectives and curating them. And so it would have been kind of a collected you know, set of collected essays a few years ago, but thought I'd try my hand at an online magazine or a blogazine, I guess. And that's how my nonprofit was born about three and a half years ago, was the idea of just kind of curating this, you know, uh, collection of essays or perspectives that I would invite people from this wide uh, range of professions People who I, you know, I've always been sort of a party thrower back in New York. My parties were well known, you know, they were great <laughs> parties. And I think it's the same thing. I love getting people together from different walks of life and getting them to talk to each other and realizing that they had a lot in common and really enjoyed each other. And really, that's what I was trying to do with my online magazine. Guess what? That chef is somebody that you should talk to, Mr. Engineer or Ms. School Principal or whoever, you know? Mm-hmm. because you actually have a lot that you would get excited about. Mm-hmm. So it was my way of having that same thing going on. So that, that was my goal initially, and that's how TalkStem started. What's your nonprofit called? It's called TalkStem. So talk and then STEM standing for science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. So do you target um, younger audiences to kind of consume the content, or who's your target audience? That's uh, Target audience is educators uh, of all you know, formal, sort of really trying to disrupt this notion of formal and informal education. Again, sort of my view that education is something that happens in a wide variety of spheres and contexts mm-hmm. and done by people from all different angles. Mm-hmm. So kind of uh, my little startup in a way it functions as um, mm-hmm. is to disrupt this notion. So all kinds of educators, whether they are, you know, institutional, in school, university, museum, zoo, uh, district, uh, or just uh, corporate professionals uh, who in some way are connected to or interested in connecting to uh, helping youth, you know, pursue creative opportunities in STEM education. And how do you feel like your background kind of influenced where you ultimately ended up with your nonprofit? I think that was less my background, but just more me. I've always really been interested in science. So when I went to school in Malaysia, like I mentioned, there was, you know, you have a science path and an arts path when you do your O-levels. And I took the science path because I was, you know, pretty good at science, particularly like biology, et cetera. But I was, remember when they gave out awards at the end of high school in Malaysia, I would get, I got the award for English literature and for biology. And I love both of them. Mm-hmm. And because it was Asia, if you were good at both, you picked science right. because you're not an idiot. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> yeah. And so I really did that. Honestly, I often think about that. If I had been in school in the U.S., I probably would have gone into some sort of interdisciplinary program or I would have explored both options. The only thing that was clear to me with my love of biology and English was that I was definitely not going to be a doctor. I knew very clearly from early on that I was not going to be. 
But in a way, who knows? It's good because I use all of that in the work I do. I love putting a different spin on things and debunking these stereotypes. Talking about stereotypes, it's a huge stereotype. People think of me as an Indian who likes science. And that's where I feel the stereotype, yes. The kind of science that they think I probably do or am good at is very different from you know, what, what I consider to be science. So my, my definition of the nature of science is fairly broad. And my goal is to get uh, students in particular, you know, to come on to this, if you will, the super highway of STEM, but there's all different kinds of on-ramps, right? You could be the kid who loves math competitions, or you could be this artist who just loves architecture and so forth. And, you know, there's a place for you. For me, my new exploration is being a nonprofit leader and advancing that agenda, getting funding and getting to know other people in, in this very varied and large space. It's different for me because I come from Asian culture and I come from an academic culture, both of which are not the most pushy cultures in the world. And so here I'm learning to be actually quite pushy. And what I've learned is if people care enough about something, they will speak up. And they will find their own way to speak up, whether it is, you know, using their physical voice or using their voice through writing or any other way. So, yeah, I hope this has been helpful. I know you've been gathering a lot of information from uh, lots of different women. Yeah. Um, Are there any questions that I can answer for you? Well, no, I'm just going to Google you and find your book. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us, Koshi. And thank you to our listeners. Join us next time on They See Women Diaspora a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of Thaisi Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash McDade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Koshi Dingra. <laughs>